on Farage tonight. A big day tomorrow for Rishi Sunak. Should he ditch the national insurance rise? Half the cabinet thinks he should. David Davis has just rebelled against the nationality and borders bill. He joins me in the studio. We'll find out why. And joining me on Talking Pines, formerly our man in Washington, D.C., Sir Christopher Meyer. Good evening. Well, it's the spring statement tomorrow. Rishi Sunak's big day. You might have seen on the news there, 24 sheets of paper lined up all over his desk. Now, at the weekend, Rishi Sunak said, I'm a low-tax guy. Hmm, interesting. A little bit like people who said they voted Remain, but they were leavers, really. I couldn't quite work it out. You see, the opposite, actually, if you think about it, is true. Freezing tax bans way below rates of inflation, so that more and more people get trapped in the 40% tax bracket. Raising national insurance on employers and, of course, on employees. And don't forget, the amount of VAT we pay is also going up as prices rise, because it's 20% of a bigger number. When you look at that and think about that and add to it the worst cost of living crisis in 50 years. And I'm not sure that most people have realised just how difficult this is going to be when they start to get their bills through in the first couple of weeks of April and when food prices really start to, you know, hit the weekly shopping basket. We've got forecasted growth of 3% for this year, going right down to 1.3% next year. Inflation running at 8%, uh, and many think it could go as high as 10%. It's called stagflation. Yes, I know you've never heard of it. That's because no one's talked about it for decades. But it is a period when you have inflation, but are in a relatively stagnant economy. And I think right now, the last thing the Chancellor should be doing is putting up national insurance, putting up taxes. And those tax rises, I repeat, not just on employers, but on employees as well. We're told that up to five of the Cabinet now feel very strongly about this. And who's to say, overnight, there could be one or two very big changes. Well, joining me now to talk about this, and by the way, you could have your say on this, farage at gbnews.uk. Joining me to talk about this is Jonathan Porters, Professor of Economics at King's College in London. And, Jonathan, you've been inside number 10, you've seen statements and budgets prepared, and you've seen the responses to them. Uh, I mean, what's your view? Should Rishi ditch the NI rise? Um, for me, the real priority would be to actually help low-income families. And ditching the NI rise would help low-income families to some extent. But the real big cuts and the real hit is going to the poorest families, the bottom 20 or 30 percent. And actually, the NI rise doesn't bear that heavily on them. What's really going to hit them is, um, and this is true of poor pensioners as well, is the uprating of benefits and pensions. So benefits and pensions are going to rise by 3% in April at a time when inflation is going to be running at 7 or 8%. So that is a huge real cut um, to the poorest in our society. So my priority for limited resources would be to increase universal credit and perhaps to restore at least some of the cut that was imposed to pensions by the government cancelling the triple lock 
um, which of course was a, also a manifesto commitment, of course. But yeah. Which was ditched. But would a rise in national insurance thresholds not also help the low paid? Um, a rise in national insurance thresholds would help the, help the low paid. And I think it's probably quite likely that Chancellor will actually do that. And I think that is useful. Um, yeah. It's not a big deal. It's actually, you know, it's a, it's a few pounds a week at most, which is useful. Um, so in my view, it's a useful accompaniment to increasing benefit rates and pensions, but not enough on its own. It looks, Jonathan, although what's going to happen tomorrow is that Rishi is going to stick with this NI rise, this effectively tax rise. And then we've got the leader of the Labour opposition, Sir Keir Starmer, saying that the rise shouldn't happen. Are we, for the first time in our lifetimes, looking at a Labour party limbering up for a next general election, saying, vote for us and we'll cut taxes? Is that even feasible or possible? Well, in some ways, you know, it's not as unprecedented as you think, actually, because remember, Labour teamed up with some Conservatives to oppose the VAT rise on fuel and power back in the uh, 1990s. In fact, the last time, you know, Labour won an election from opposition, it was promising tax cuts uh, for fuel and power. So we're, in some sense, we're not in that different a world to then. You know, to be frank, you know, it's not that hard for oppositions to, to call for governments not to, to, to cut taxes. Um, actually doing it when you're in power is a bit harder. Yes. So, so you know, I, I'm not sure it's as revolutionary as you think. This is sort of the way politics often goes, to be honest. Yeah, but I'm just sort of thinking, I mean, you know, general election expected in 2023. Um, and, yeah, I just wonder, you know, could is this somewhere, is it something on which the Labour Party could perhaps outflank the Conservatives? That's what I was musing on. The cost of living crisis, Jonathan, it's real. Uh, we know massive increases coming in people's gas bills, electricity bills, let alone uh, those that have to drive for work or taking kids to school or whatever it may be. Um, much, much talk of a cut in fuel duty. And when we look at our neighbours, we look at what's happening on the continent, we look at what's happening in Ireland in particular, you know, we are seeing some quite substantial cuts in those countries to fuel duty. Uh, we have the highest fuel duty of any country in the European time zone, with the exception of Malta, where you can't drive very far anyway. Um, what, what kind of cut to fuel duty would be needed for people to sort of notice a difference and say thank you? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the sort of numbers one often sees to talk about are, are five pence off fuel duty. That's enough for people to notice, although it's only a pretty small fraction of the increases yeah. that we've seen. Um, I think, you know, to my mind, you, you have to, the, sort of the big picture here is, you know, um, inflation has gone up and inflation has gone up driven by higher energy prices. Um, that raise, you know, so that makes us as a country poorer, you know, because we import a lot of our energy. So we're going to be poorer. So on, in some sense, the chancellor can't stop all the pain. He can decide how to share it. He can decide how to distribute it between people like you and me who are doing quite well, people who are in the middle, maybe struggling, but not starving. And then people right at the bottom who are resorting to food banks or can't eat their houses. That's his choice. How do you redistribute the pain? How do you 
deal with the fact that actually energy and fuel bills hit the poorest hardest, whereas um, people like us at the upper end of the income spectrum, well, you know, we still feel the impact of tax rises and price rises. Uh, I do too, yeah. but, and I'm sure you yeah. do too. We're still not, frankly, struggling, and we can probably afford to bear some of the burden. The second point I would make is that inflation is good for the public finances. The Treasury gets more money, um, as you mentioned earlier, when inflation goes up, VAT mm. receipts go up, mm. tax receipts go up because wages go up, even if they're still falling in real terms. So the Chancellor has got money in the coffers, as it were, that he could redistribute if he wanted to. The question is how he's going to do that. Yeah. And a final thought. Would a Keir Starmer government have very different economic policies to those being put forward by Rishi Sunak? Or have we, have we sort of got to a politics now at this moment in time where actually there aren't big key differences between the Conservative and Labour parties? Um, I mean, I think you're right there in the sense that it is not obvious that there would be massive differences in the, you know, the overall economic strategy. Both parties are committed to levelling up um, or some version of it. Both parties are committed to greater state intervention in the economy than was under Thatcher, but equally, um, Labour has ditched, I think, the uh, the sort of um, nationalising a lot of uh, um, privatised industries that was the policy under Cormann. So there definitely has been that degree of convergence. Yeah. Um, I think, frankly, um, neither the Conservatives nor Labour have really defined a coherent economic policy for post-Brexit Britain, um, that we're still waiting to hear what that looks like. Yes, I'm waiting. As a Brexiteer, I really am waiting. Jonathan Porters, thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening here on GB News. And that's the point Jonathan makes. There isn't actually a huge amount to choose between the two. Now, John, I mean, it seems that Boris has had another one of his great enthusiasms. We're told he is extremely gung-ho indeed. He's been through an evangelical conversion to nuclear power. Let's just remind ourselves, we've run down our nuclear power stations. Most are being decommissioned or have been decommissioned by 2030. Literally, there'd be one or two nuclear power stations left in production. Nuclear power, which was giving us 25% of our electricity, is now giving us about 17% of our electricity, and that number is declining pretty much every year. Boris Johnson yesterday had a big meeting with major nuclear power companies, both British, uh, American, uh, not just nuclear power companies, but construction companies as well. We're told that he wants to loosen up planning regulations to stop objections to nuclear power stations being built. Are we about to enter a new nuclear age? Well, joining me, is Dr. Jonathan Cobb, Senior Communication Manager at the World Nuclear Association. Now, I'm guessing that you've been through years after Fukushima um, of hearing very bad things said about nuclear power, nuclear waste, nuclear risk. Um, is this a short-term burst of enthusiasm for the Prime Minister, or do you think this is a genuine strategic change of direction? I think it is a, a new momentum. So there, there has been support for nuclear energy in the UK uh, for a long time. UK has been using nuclear energy for more than 60 years. And as you said, it used to get a quarter of its power, electricity, uh, from nuclear energy. 
So there has been this support, but there has not been the momentum to really start a major uh, amount of investment in new reactors. And as you've pointed out, because the reactors that we do have, most of them are beginning to be shut down now. Yeah. And all bar one of the current ones will be shut down by 2030. There is a need to start that process of, of rebuild. We've got two reactors under construction at the moment at Hinkley Point. There are proposals for other and hopefully this new initiative, this kickstart, will kick some of those new projects uh, into starting off. But Hinkley Point is the old style sort of huge monstrosity. Uh, we're told that in America uh, they, are, they are actually developing, beginning to build smaller scale uh, nuclear plants. I'm, I'm saying this because can the industry carry public opinion with it? For example, even though of course, it doesn't emit carbon dioxide. The Greens, for example, have been completely opposed to nuclear energy. Yeah, I think the, some of the Green parties are opposed and they have that position, but they're not the mainstream view. And there are Green parties now in some other countries which are changing their position. So the Green Party in Finland, for example, is, is changing its position on this. They're seeing for their perspective, they want to move to net zero and they don't want to put all their eggs in one renewable basket. They're looking at all the options. So if that is your driver for the way you want energy mixes to go, they're reconsidering their position. Uh, but I think there is, there is greater support. And in the UK, I think there's support because of the amount of jobs that these new build projects are, are providing. Yes. Tens of thousands of jobs are being provided by Hinkley Point. Many more will be pr provided if these, these new projects came forward. And the it, UK's uh, strategy is not just the existing reactors, which do a really good job. They provide a large amount of power all in one go, so they've got their place. But there's also uh, a commitment to develop what's called small modular reactors as well. So giving both options, the large and small technology, uh, for reactors in the future. Now, critics will say, of course, that it's a very expensive form of energy and that decommissioning at end of life is a very very lengthy process. Um, but I'm just wondering about something, because Boris Johnson has been saying we should become the Saudi Arabia of wind. Now he's saying we're going to go gung-ho for nuclear. But the two don't work together, do they? It's gas that provides the backup for wind energy when the turbines aren't blowing, whereas nuclear power is a constant. So if we're going to go for nuclear on this scale, presumably we don't need to build any more wind turbines. Well, some of the figures that have been mentioned, uh, I think in your report, you talked about going back to 25% generation yeah. from nuclear. So there is going to need to be something else. Now, at the moment, nuclear tends to operate in the base load. It is always on because that is the most cost-effective way of running these plants. They run 24-7, you know, whatever the weather, and they can run at a very high capacity factor. Yeah. But if you do want to have a mix that slowly phases out gas, especially these new technologies, especially the SMRs, these new designs, they can be run in a way to help balance the, the energy mix, to help compensate for variation, not only in production from variable renewables, but also the, the variations in demand there is as people use more electricity during the day. So there are these technologies coming through with nuclear reactors that will have this new flexibility. Going to be very interesting indeed. Jonathan Cobb, thank you for joining us here on GB News this evening. In a moment, well, I, I discovered last night 
that the gas pipelines from Russia that go through to Europe, to Germany in particular, of course, are still going through Ukraine, and Ukraine are still receiving money from Russia whilst they're at war. Surely that can't be right. And David Davis has just rebelled in the House of Commons against the Nationality and Borders Bill. He'll be here in the studio in a moment to tell us why. So, should Rishi ditch the NI rise tomorrow? Rahul says, keep it on for individuals earning £41,000 and above per year. Cancel it for others. Most people would benefit from this. Steve says, ask Rishi to help struggling pensioners by reinstating the triple lot pension promise we voted for in the 2019 manifesto. Pensioners need it not now, not in 2023. Well, good luck with that. Bob says, no, but ring fence for NHS and care and insist on reform. And finally, Robert says, the Labour Party are the party of tax rises, not the Conservatives. Well, I tell you what, I do wonder, and David, I want to talk to you. David Davis, welcome. I do want to talk to you about the Nationality and Borders Bill, but I'm trying to work this out. So the Conservative Party is the party that puts taxes up for employers and employees, and the Labour Party cuts taxes. No, it's the other way around. <laughs> well, that, well, well, that, well, I'm just asking the... That, that, that's exactly the argument I made last September, October, when this was all coming up. I mean, you know, it, 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 we believe... It used to be called the Laffer Curve. Yes. Know? Oh, we yes. Believe, we believe if you cut taxes, yes. the economy grows faster and you actually end up getting more money out of it. You when know? you say we, you mean the Conservative Party of 35 years ago? I mean, well, a little, a little more recently than that, but yes. <laughs> the Conservative Party that I grew up with, put it that way. Yeah. Now, David, you know, you have become sort of the naughtiest boy in school in some ways <laughs> um, because you are rebelling against the government on issues that you feel very strongly about, and, you know, we understand that. But the Nationality and Borders Bill yeah. embattled Pretty Patel. Yeah. And, by the way, the number of people who've come across the channel so far this year, 90% young men, undocumented, we know all that stuff. Yeah. The numbers that have come th across the channel so far this year are running at a rate of four times where we were this time last year. Mm. And in the end, when they revised the figures up, it was 28,000 this year. We could be looking at 100,000 people. And Pretty Patel is putting in place measures where people that come across the channel will be sent off to Ghana or wherever it is, which will discourage others from coming. Why are you... Because you voted against this. You rebelled against oh, this. I voted against it just an hour or two ago. Yeah. yeah. So, so why are you trying to stop Pretty Patel doing this when she wants to reduce the numbers crossing the channel? Surely you're not for a free-for-all. Right. One, it won't work. I mean, you know, I, I agree. I mean, I started my speech today by saying, you know, this is a really serious issue. And yeah. it's difficult. It's intractable. You know, uh, governments of all persuasions struggle with this. This one, you know, uh, pretty... N nobody could be more committed to control Im immigration than Pretty Patel. I mean, I give her that w without, without reservation. But this won't work. You know, you know, you've got to do things that work. And it's copied from the Australian system, where yep. they supposedly sent people abroad. They, had, they only had about 3,000 asylum seekers. They put them all on an island called yep. Nauru. I mean, also uh, Papua New Guinea, but principally on an island called Nauru. And it didn't work. I mean, the real thing that stopped 
the uh, basically bogus asylum seekers, which the Australians would tell you, uh, coming on coming in boats was them turning them back. Yes, no, no, I I, I get that, but yeah. I mean, you know, you've said this would be a British Guantanamo Bay. I mean, it's a bit <laughs> strong, isn't no, it? No, because what happened? I mean, the only model we have is the Australian one, so we have to look at that. And there were three thousand odd asylum seekers. There were two thousand uh, assaults. Of one sort or another, you know, some of one in the camps, in the camps, and uh, half of those are against children. You know, there were there were stories. I mean, I read out a few. The stories of children trying to kill themselves because because of the way they're being treated. A child that soaked itself in petrol and tried to set fire. That sort of thing. Now we don't want that. You remember? You remember in the middle of all of the migration arguments in Europe when that child was washed up on the Turkey beach? What it did to people's mindset about, about migration and so on, mm. for a while anyway. Well, imagine if you had something like, something terrible go wrong in a camp, as it were, on our, on our watch. What, how, would, how would the public respond? Because, you know, you and I, I think, both take the view that the public's actually very rational about immigration. Oh, yeah. It, make, it, yeah, makes, yeah, yeah. it doesn't make its judgments out of bigotry. Mm. It makes you, you know, it makes says, well, what's this going to do to my employment? What's this going to do to my housing? Mm. What's this going to do to my schooling? Those are sensible, rational decisions. Uh, they don't want us to be gratuitously cruel. No. And, that, and that's, that's unfortunately what this would turn out to be. Yes, and they're also rational in the sense that they, they can work out for themselves who they believe is a genuine refugee... Yeah. And who isn't? And, 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 and they do make their minds up Absolutely. on this. Absolutely. And, and, and right enough, they will look at these uh, people coming across the channel and say, mostly they're young men. Yeah. They're not families. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and they're not necessarily fleeing. And they're all undocumented. Terrible, terrible regimes. That's right. So we, we, you know, we have so, to fix, so, we have to fix so that. So, David, if, if sending people off hmm. to offshore processing, as it's hmm. called, doesn't work, and I think there were about three of you that rebelled against the government, yeah. so it wasn't a very big rebellion. No, it's no, no, no. It's what is the answer? Well, the answer's got to be turned back. It's got to be pushed back. You know, it, it, we've got to... It, either, we, either we settle something with the French, because the French, in my view, have not behaved well in this whole exercise. Well, what's new about that? No. <laughs> Fair enough. But, you know, and, and, of course, they are in the middle of an election campaign as well, which yeah, tends to make them yeah, behave. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we've got, to, we've got to settle that uh, with them. I mean, yeah. we, we are at the moment talking to all of our allies in Europe. So push back. Pushback is pushback is so we can do pushback if yeah. the French agree. What if the French don't agree? Well, I think we're going to have to look at the law because you see, I think we have to look at maritime law very closely. Maritime law is built around safety first and foremost. What do these what do these people smugglers do? They put these people in deliberately unsafe boats. I mean, the Australian uh, analogy. I mean, I was, uh, I was talking to the ex prime minister of Australia last week about this. Tony Abbott. Yeah. Tony Abbott. Uh, and, and he uh, and he said. What they used to do is they'd scuttle a boat as soon as a, uh, an Australian uh, naval vessel turned. They scuttle the boat so they had to pick up all. And then it so, becomes a rescue. So what did they do then? What did the Australians do? They were very clever. They took their own boats mm. and said, "Here we are. You've, you've scuttled your own boat. Here's uh, uh, here's a here's a boat. It's seaworthy. It'll get you back to Indonesia and just enough petrol." Well, to I'd get like you there. I'd like to hear more about pushbacks. I've always believed pushbacks the yeah, only way. It's got to be. But it's going to be difficult to do it within international law. Yeah. Well, but, you know, Australia, you know when, Australia when, did it. When you're in business, you know, did you say to lawyers, can I do this? Or did you say to lawyers, show me a way I can do this? Of course. And it's the second one we need to say to our government Fine. lawyers. Show me a way to make this work. Quick thought, David. It's a personal thing. Yeah. An MP under parliamentary privilege said something about me last week that is completely without fact. It's leading to all sorts of difficulties, threats, goodness knows what. 
What are the limits? You're an MP, you've got parliamentary privilege. What are the limits? Are there any limits to it? Well, there are no technical limits at all. You know, you can say what you like in the House of Commons. That is, that's in order to prevent governments repressing you or whatever. Yeah, which is a good or, thing. Or oligarchs suing you or whatever. That's been, that's been a big thing in the last few weeks. Um, but the, but the, the real limit is in, in here. You know, the real limit is your own conscience. Mm. So, so, for example, when we were talking about oligarchs and people said things to me, I said, are you sure about that? Can you show me the evidence? Because I'm not going to say that in the Commons unless I am absolutely mm. persuaded it's true. That's the real limit. It's the conscience of the individual member of parliament. And what if the individual member of parliament doesn't have a very good conscience? Well, that's the, <laughs> that's, that's the limit of our limits. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it's an issue I'm struggling with. I've written to the speaker. I'm waiting for an answer. David Davis, serial rebel, thank you for real joining us again <laughs> on GB News. Yeah, well, that one's going to run and run, folks, because I think, you know, the weather forecast for the next week, it's going to be flat, calm. Uh, I'm guessing by the end of March, we're going to be... Certainly looking at two and a half, three thousand people coming across in the month of March alone. And remember, the numbers go up as it gets warmer. Now, one of the areas tomorrow that we're hoping, hoping that we're going to get more than five pence off is fuel duty. But number 10, of course, has another big problem. If we all move to electric cars, where are they going to get their revenue from? It's a massive problem. You know the answer, don't you? It was leaked to the Times overnight. We've heard it before. Um, it's going to be road tolls. Yes, that's right. It'll be like France, where we have to pay to use the motorways. And, of course, we'll be tracked by camera absolutely everywhere we go. If any of you have driven on these so-called smart motorways, it isn't just the fact that there's no hard shoulder and it's really very dangerous if you break down. It's the fact there's a camera on you the whole time. Extraordinary 50 mile an hour speed limits introduced for no reasons. Cameras flashing left, right and centre. Drivers terrified. Another victory for the big state, which I find so loathsome. Story I heard last night. I hadn't thought about this, but it's actually quite interesting. So there are pipelines that run through Ukraine. Remember, Nord Stream 2 has not yet been completed. That was the pipeline that was going to go under the Baltic, bypassing Ukraine. Those pipelines through Ukraine are still operational. And the boss of Naftogaz, which is the biggest Ukrainian oil and gas company, made clear last night that despite the war, the flow of gas coming in, particularly, of course, to Germany, Italy, countries like that, is exactly the same as it was before the war. And almost extraordinarily, the Russians are still paying the Ukrainians to allow them to use their land. And the Germans, of course, by continuing to buy so much gas, are effectively paying for Mr Putin to wage war. You literally couldn't invent some of this stuff, could you? Right, let's get on to a few more of your responses to should... Rishi ditch the national insurance rise tomorrow. Chris says, I would suggest we cut the NI tax to below where we have it now and then give a business tax rise by a small amount and with more people, more people will have more money and buy more goods and stimulate the economy. I think it's the argument that lower taxes, we heard about Laffer curves earlier on from David Davis um, and that's what you're hinting at. Ian says, I've been a Tory voter all my adult life Never again. These Tories, led by Johnson, are a joke. 
They believe in low tax whilst increasing them. What a load of rubbish. Oh, come on. Rishi's a low tax guy. You've got to believe it. He said so in Blackpool at the weekend. Another viewer says, cut the 20% green levy as it's effectively doubled pump prices. The green levy, my upset with the green levy is the 25% renewable and social obligations that have been put on every electricity bill in this country without any open, honest debate whatsoever. And that, to me, is a complete and utter outrage. Now, after the break, it's my favourite part of this show. Yes, it's the politically and crack talking pints. And I'm going to be joined by someone today who was a press secretary for John Major, who chaired the Press Complaints Commission and spent five and a half years with, I think, probably the best diplomatic job any Brit could ever get, because, yes, he was our ambassador in Washington, D.C. In a moment, I'll be joined by Sir Christopher Mike. The GB News Tavern is well and truly declared open, and I'm joined on Talking Pints by Sir Christopher Meyer. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Nigel. Cheers. Cheers. Very good <laughs> yeah. to see you. But you've never done this on TV before, have you? Never. No, never. never. I've had a drop of alcohol has never passed my lips <laughs> on TV. Well, I was going to come on to that subject because, you know, as a diplomat, I know you served in Brussels and you did some time in Moscow and goodness knows where else you went. But the job you finished up with, five and a half years in Washington, D.C., as our, as our man, our ambassador to the United States of America, I mean, that must have been the dream job for a diplomat. It was the dream job yeah. for a diplomat because you, you had this sense that you were in the world's only superpower, as it was at that time, to mm. be perfectly yeah. frank. Yeah. It was the summit in many different ways of any diplomat's career. And I had uh, two presidents on my watch. I had Bill Clinton and his uh, second administration, and I had the first bit of George W. Bush. And from the moment arrived, when I arrived, somebody said to me, it's going to be terribly boring, you know. It's going to be very, very boring because the economy is going very, very well. Yep. And then Monica Lewinsky exploded on the scene, if I can put it like that. And from then on, it was non-stop action from, from you know, excitement to tragedy, you name it, 9-11, all yep. that stuff. Yes, and wars. And wars, and uh, several wars. And finally, uh, I left just before the war in Iraq began. So it, it was all action all yeah, of the time. Yeah, and of course the Afghanistan decision. And Iraq was building, wasn't it? I mean, at the time you left, was it obvious to you that Iraq was going to happen? Uh, it, it, I'm one of those who think that George W. Bush took the decision to go into Iraq pretty late. That there was not something that he had finally decided very early on. For example, there's a, there's a school of thought that says that when Tony Blair and George W. met at George W.'s ranch in, mm, I remember. in April of 2003. Yo, yo Blair. Yeah. Yeah, you get, oh, you get all that stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, Bush was full of that kind of stuff. You know, He said uh, Putin was one cold dude. Extremely, <laughs> 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 you know, one cold dude. Absolutely right. And then he made a mistake by saying, I looked into Putin's heart and I saw this was somebody I could do business with or mm. something like that. He changed his mind, of course. Well, we'll come to but no, we will come to Putin, I promise you. But you're there through all that drama. But you're living in splendour. You've got yeah. most, you've got a magnificent wine cellar. Your job is to entertain for the country. Well, hang on, hang on, <laughs> hang on a 
laugh at it. I mean, people, some people think all I did was dish out Ferrero Rocher and Milad Advertise uh, to, to people who came, came, came to receptions. And of course, when they came to the British Embassy, mm. it did represent the United Kingdom. Quite. And it represented the monarchy. Because I don't get my commission as a, I didn't get my commission yeah. as a diplomat from the government. I got it from Her Majesty the Queen. So you had to live up to this. And of course, the Americans, you know America better than I do. They love it. Frankly. They love they it. They just love that. And you had to have it yeah. as they would expect it to be. And so we tried to be modern and informal, but at the same time, not let them forget that this was... Yeah. An outpost of Her Majesty. Yeah, well, it's a job I wasn't going to get, even though... Um, no, you would have done it very well, even, I think. Well, even though the 45th president did send a tweet out <laughs> late I one know. night... That's su- a notorious moment. <laughs> ...suggesting that I, I should... Know. I, of course, it had it been offered, would have done it happily and gleefully, and I, yeah. I suspect I might have done better with the 45th president um, than in the end we did. Um, but that's, by the by, that's history. Yeah. It is interesting. I mean, did you feel Clinton... And Bush had a strong affinity to the UK, or not especially. I mean, how did they view us? I thought Clinton had a very cold eye to him. More so, actually, than Hillary. Hillary has the reputation of being a bit robotic, mm-hmm. but in private, it was it was Clinton who frequently went into kind of a cold uh, a mood where he wouldn't he wouldn't say say anything. What he did have, though, and what we had with Clinton was a very good relationship between Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. Yes. Clinton, I think, had no particular sympathy for the United Kingdom, although he was a Rhodes Scholar and he had attended Oxford. So he could have created a loving relationship with us. I don't think he did, because I don't think he was that kind of man, to be quite honest with you. But he and Blair, and Blair played this very well, I've got, I, I have to take my hat off to him, did create a political and personal relationship that was very, very strong and served us in the UK very well. Now, the 45th president, Donald Trump, who I mentioned, of course, without doubt the most pro-United Kingdom president there's been for a long, long time. I mean, huge admirer of the Queen and, of course, the Scottish ancestry from his mother and all the rest of it. If he was in the White House today, would Putin have invaded Ukraine? Well, the answer to that is, because I don't understand Trump Mm. as much as you do, if I can put it like that, it either would have been an incentive to invade or it would have been a deterrent to invade. And I don't know which of those two things is, is right. In a sense, the unpredictability is what may have scared Putin. It might, have, it might have scared Putin. And one of the things I hold against Joe Biden, I think, is it has not been a good move for American diplomacy is to make it so clear from the very outset there was no question of NATO boots on the ground. Um, I think no NATO boots on the ground is probably right. But I think Biden could have left a kind of cloud of ambiguity hanging mm. over this, too, so that it, it makes Putin's calculation, therefore, much harder to arrive at. And as the leader of the Western world and the strongest partner in the NATO alliance by country mile, I've been astonished that we haven't seen Biden over here in Europe. He's coming tomorrow. Yeah, he's coming now, isn't he? But, but I mean, I would have thought three weeks ago there should have been a sort of get-together at NATO HQ... I mean, there isn't much leadership coming, is there? I, 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 when somebody said to me several years ago, well, Biden's running for the, for, for the presidency uh, of, uh, you know, against Trump in his first term, um, <coughs> my immediate reaction is too old. Yeah. I knew Trump, sorry, I knew Biden in Washington when he was at, at his peak of his powers. He was a very, very effective 
congressional Senate politician. Brilliant. Um, and he declined after that. You could see it happening while he was vice president uh, to Obama. And we've seen it, I think, ever since he's, even since the inauguration. That he's, that he, he, it's quite he, embarrassing watching it sometimes. I, I actually think he's, um, he's too old yeah. for the job. And I think this has constrained the kinds of things that he can do. And unfortunately, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and mm -hmm. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, yeah, they can replace him, but they don't have the charisma or the personality that some of their predecessors used to have. And Kamala Harris, the Vice President... And that hasn't worked very well either, has it? It hasn't worked well. It hasn't worked well. And I was surprised he appointed her, actually. And you've got Trump, who's 75, and you've got talk of Hillary Clinton perhaps wanting to run again. And it's astonishing, isn't it? No, I can't really say this, because, Nigel, you're a mere child compared with me. <laughs> but I mean, as a septuagenarian, you know, you can't, you can't run the Western world on septuagenarians, if I pronounced yeah, that right. Yeah, yeah. So if Trump runs in 2024, he's going to be how much? 70... He'd be 78. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't do that. It, it well, can't. It's, yeah, it certainly hasn't worked in Biden's favour. Um, and where are we with, I mean, where are we with it, this man, Putin? I mean, I, I have to tell you, I always thought this was a cold, hard, calculating individual. I never liked him as a human being, but I thought he was a clever operator, a clever player yeah. of the Russian yeah. national interest. And, and, and now I sort of wonder to myself, is this a symptom of somebody who's been in an ivory tower for 22 years, has lost touch with reality? Is he, I mean, what, what's going on in your view? When I, I was posted to Moscow twice, I went there in the late 60s and I went there again in the mid-80s. And the guys I met who were avowed KGB yep. were always the more interesting, the more intelligent, the more sophisticated. So the fact that he'd had a KGB background before he became president of Russia, initially I thought to myself, well, at least we cut to the chase here. We've got the guys who really know what's what. But I think what has overwhelmed that and overwhelmed his reputation as being a cunning, strategic, yeah. more tactical, mm. chess-playing guy is the huge sense of humiliation and grievance he carries inside himself, as do the people immediately around him. This is Mo the, the loss of their empire, effectively. Yeah, I mean, you could. how far do you go back? It, it, I knew Russians who were enraged that we didn't give them sufficient credit for Stalin's role in the Second World War, mm. what the Russians call the Great Patriotic War. Yeah. Then you have the collapse of the Soviet Union and your country disappears. And you are a lieutenant colonel in the KGB mm. sitting in Dresden mm. and you see Eastern Germany, the old East German Republic, handed back to the Federal Republic of Germany and it is the greatest humiliation you have ever endured. And then I think in our moment of triumph when communism collapsed in 1991, uh, we didn't handle it very well. And Henry Kissinger, my worship at the feet of him. Yeah. And George Kennan, who invented, uh, veteran American diplomat, who invented the idea of containment, said move, expanding NATO eastwards oh. was a massive blunder. Uh, and oh. there were other ways of maintaining and preserving the security of Central I felt Europe. this for 30 years. And when we saw the revolution in 2014 in Ukraine, you know, I remember saying to the European Parliament, you know, we're, we're, we're with the expansion of NATO and the European Union, we're, you know, we're playing into Russian paranoia. And I've been called a Putin supporter for daring to say. Yeah, well, you are. Well, I mean, I'm being called a Putin supporter for daring to say. Oh, really? I mean, you know, I mean, I think, I think, I think 
Putin is a vile, deranged bastard. I really do. Uh, I think so. he's turned into a hideous man. But I think yeah. it is this yeah, that yeah. has warped him. Before, before the watershed, we apologise for that word. No. You don't yeah. that <laughs> when is your watershed? That's all right. That's I've all got right. the bear shed here. <laughs> That's okay. You're forgiven. Yeah, no, so he's... Yeah. So, so how does this end? Because we have to actually give Putin a way out, don't we? Well, I'm not sure we need to give Putin a way out. I would give Russia a way out. Okay. Uh, and I... I, I yeah, that, that is the key question, Nigel. Yeah. How does this end? Ooh. And uh, I haven't... To be honest with you, I haven't a clue, but what it, the steps it needs to go through is some kind of ceasefire slash truce slash arrangement between Zelensky, uh -huh. Ukrainian president, yep. and Putin. And then maybe the rest of us, Americans, NATO, can, can build on that to come up with some uh, pan-European solution which would be based on arms control. So you wouldn't have to talk about neutrality or Finlandization, which the Ukrainians yeah, hate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the thing that is most dangerous, most dangerous right now, is that people say to me, is this a new Cold War? And I say to them, I wish, wish it was. Because the Cold War, as we remember it, was full of rules, yeah. regulations, ways yeah. of doing business, arms control treaty. It's a regulated crisis. I know we don't know where we are. And now we have no clue. Agree. No, I agree. a clue. I agree. Now, as a foreign office man, are you still in mourning over Brexit? No. Well, no. Let me I, let, may, may I put this on the record? <laughs> I voted Remain. Yeah. But I never believed in ever closer union. I took a pragmatic decision. To leave is going to be so difficult, so complicated, going to involve such, about to use another rude word, difficult negotiation, better to stay inside and try to reform it from within in the way that Margaret Thatcher succeeded in doing. John Major did quite well over the Maastricht negotiations. David Cameron made a complete pig's ear of the whole thing. Uh, and that was the way to go. But once the decision had been taken, yeah. we had a moral and political obligation to respect it yes. and implement it. And we went through three and a half years of absolute agony, didn't we? Yeah, well, then I became, but the thing that then interested me most of all was the negotiation. How were we going to negotiate our withdrawal? Mm. And talking of pig's ears, that was another one. Yes, I mean, I, it, it was awful. But of course, all of this, or much of this, we form our opinions, ordinary folk going about their lives, you know, bringing up their families, doing their jobs. <clears throat> they form their opinions through the press. They form it through what they read in the newspapers, what they see on the telly. And now, of course, the whole dimension of social media. And I'm just interested to get your take. You know, there you were, boss of the Press Complaints Commission, <laughs> during a period in which, let's be frank, a lot of British newspapers behaved abominably. No, they, they did behave badly. You know. You know, and we got Leveson. I, I wonder, perhaps we've now got the right relationship between public figures and the press. What do you think? Well, I thought the Press Complaints Commission, I mean, I chaired it for, for, for six years and yeah. it had loads of things wrong with it. There's loads of stuff that I wanted to do to make it more effective and uh, to make regulation tighter. Uh, but the one thing I did not believe in, and this is the direction in which Leveson was moving, mm. was in state regulation yeah. of the media. And of course, already, what year am I talking about now? I mean, we were already in the 90s. 
um, 1990s. Um, am I, have I got that right? No, we were in the Later. We were in the 2000. Yeah, two, oh, 2000, 2000. This beer is just getting... <laughs> but what, what, what I would say to you was that already the media was changing rapidly. The internet was... was we didn't know... We, did, we didn't understand social media fully at yeah. the time. Yeah. And the notion that a state or a government can control any of that stuff is now for the birds. So Leveson has become almost automatically obsolete. Mm. And have we got the balance right? I, I, I just don't know. Mm. I just don't know. But we have, I mean, it's a jungle out there. It's, it, and it is. And it's the, a jungle out there. And social media, Nick Clegg, now one of the most powerful men in the world. Isn't and it extraordinary? Who would have believed it? <laughs> a final thought, Christopher. <laughs> a final thought. Good old Nick. <laughs> well, good for him, you yeah. know. Do you remember? We agree with Nick. I know, I do. I do. <laughs> a final thought. How do you see the future of this country looking five, ten years ahead? Well, I'm always an optimist. And although I, I was the very first member of my family, as far as I know, to join um, well, diplomatic service, the, the diplomatic service, the foreign office, one of the things that inspired me to do so was I was an, always an optimist about this country. I took a hit in my optimism, I have to say, in the early 70s when I returned from Spain right into the three-day week. Oh. And I thought, Jesus, you know, what is this? Yeah. And at that moment, I thought, it's the European community, as it was then called, that will save us. Yes, and many did. Uh, yeah. and, that, and that was yeah. my motivation yeah. for supporting our entry uh, yeah. into, uh, into the European community. But I worry about, I don't worry so much about Britain, because I think we have a spirit and a will here, which takes us through most things. I worry about the world. And... If we go back to Putin and Ukraine and all that, mm. there is a way it could end, which is in a nuclear conflict. Mm. It's all enough to drive you to drink, really, isn't it? Yeah, I've always tried to resist it. <laughs> but tonight I gave up. So, Christopher Meyer, thank you for joining Cheers. me on Talking Pass. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Okay, it is now time for Barrage the Farage, where you send your questions in, and I can assure you that my guest, Sir Christopher, is here to help me if I get into any very deep trouble. John asks, now that we are no longer part of the European Union, why are we still paying VAT? Well, you're right, actually, because VAT was introduced to bring us into line with the common market, the EEC, as it was known. Um, prior to that, we had sales tax. Uh, there is an argument... There is an argument for getting rid of VAT. Uh, it is a system that is riddled with fraud. Um, I suspect that this government at the moment has other economic priorities. Adrian asks, why didn't the West act against Putin when he started poisoning people on UK soil? What do you make of that, Christopher? Well, I think a lot of us are saying to each other, why didn't we take a tougher line generally with Putin much earlier on? in his tenure of power, because he started to do things which were really totally intolerable. Georgia, South Ossetia. You've got Georgia and South Ossetia, you've yeah. got all that stuff. You've got Crimea in 2014, and we yeah. left it to the German. This is before we, a lot of people think we have no role in diplomacy over the Crimea, um, because the Germans and the French are taking the lead, but they took the lead before we left the European Union. The other thing, of course, which we should have been, I think we were quite tough, but we could have been even tougher. Yeah. Is Litvinenko, his assassination. Yeah, well that's the, that's Skripal, his near assassination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have chucked out the Russian ambassador and told him to stay away for, us, you know, for a long time. Are. 
He may be in his 70s. He's pitching for a career in politics next, I can just tell. Camilla, as Putin has shown himself a liar to the world and being responsible for a disastrous war, how do you think he sees his future? I would think right now he's pretty depressed about his future, isn't he? Yeah, I would think he's... His natural reaction to setbacks is to double down. Mm. And I think this long-range artillery and aircraft bombardment of civilian uh, quarters in, in the cities is a precise example of this, that terrorizes the civilian population, which then undermines the morale of the Ukrainian army, he yeah. hopes. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, uh, uh, does he feel that he's got his back to the wall, as Joe Biden said? I, I don't know. He may be deranged. I don't know. Difficult, isn't it? But he's, he's getting desperate. Absolutely. Yeah, very difficult. Right, a couple of quickies. Who's your favourite actor? I love Michael Caine, Harry Palmer, the spy films, the Cold War. Favourite actor, Christopher? I'll go Michael Caine any day. Michael Caine any day. We've got a few seconds left. With the recent proposals by the Scottish Government on a new hunting bill, will traditional game shooting exist for the next generation to enjoy? I hope and pray that it will, but I wonder. I really wonder. Any thoughts? Uh, I hope it will. I don't shoot game myself, but I hope others will be able to. Freedom of the right to choose. That's the greatness of our country. At least it should be. 